Put in those headphones and lace up those running shoes because you are listening to The Fifth Sign. This podcast is presented by Exercises Medicine UBC. Here are your hosts, Kyle Boyle and Reed Mitchell. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Fifth Sign presented by Exercises Medicine UBC. This is the podcast where we discuss exercise as a vital sign of health. And more recently, we've been talking about inclusion in sports. So Melissa, how are you doing? I'm good, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. And before we actually dive in, I just want to settle some housekeeping things. The primary thing being you are now officially full-time on the fifth sign. So Woo-hoo! you're going to be doing all of these uh, over-the-counter series with us. And I'm super excited to have you on uh, telling all these stories. So I'm super stoked. It doesn't mean Reed's gone, listeners. Don't worry. Reed <laughs> will still be around for our usual programming. But Melissa is now here full-time. And... I'm stoked. Yeah, I have tons of ideas and tons of people I want to talk to, so I'm really looking forward to it. So why don't you take the reins on this as your first official episode full-time? <laughs> why don't you uh, dive in? Yeah, so we're here with uh, Shauna Lawson from VS Sport. She's the Manager of Research and Social Innovation. Uh, hey, Shauna, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm super excited to be here. A little nervous, but excited. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, we're really excited to talk to you. So can you just give us uh, a bit of background about uh, who you are and what is VS Sport? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll start with VS Sport, maybe. Um, so we're a nonprofit organization, and really our, our big vision where we're hoping to go is we think that you know if every single British Columbian had access to sport experiences that were safe and meaningful and inclusive, then we would have you know people and communities that are really healthy, vibrant, and connected. And so we you know came out of the 2010 Olympic Games, and we were created as this central organization to sort of help. Uh, the BC sports sector move forward. And so we do a lot of sort of funding, core funding for sport organizations. So we manage about $14 million annually in government investment um, to make sure that sport organizations are supported, um, but also reviewed to make sure that they're creating those inclusive, meaningful sport experiences. And so we sort of have four priority areas. That's inclusion, safety, capacity, and development. And most of my work falls in that inclusion category. So personally, I uh, did a Master of Arts in uh, kinesiology at UBC. So focused on sort of social issues around sport. And we have a number of, I have a few colleagues here from that program as well at UBC. And so a lot of the work that we do is grounded um, in both research and systems change. And systems change is social innovation. And so that's where I get my job title from. Personally, uh, I am a little washed up in terms of my sport participation, so I'm definitely in the physical activity uh, and slower and easier on my joints now than I used to be. So I was a competitive soccer player and a Scottish Highland dancer cool. oh, there for we many go. years. <laughs> um, and so now I do more like yoga and jogging and <laughs> yeah. things that are easier on my knees. The Vancouver so. classics, the That's yoga, right. the jogging, and the hiking. That's right. We're excited to have you on the show. So as you just said, uh, social innovation is actually in your job title, and it's not a, a phrase you hear um, commonly out on the street. So what mm-hmm. is social innovation in your own words? Mm-hmm. I'll say you probably will start to hear it more often. Um, social innovation is really, we're talking about systems change. And so we fund, you know, 
50 plus odd organizations, that's a whole sports system. And so social innovation is sort of an approach or a, a way of thinking that allows you to take all that complexity of all those organizations into account. And so, you know, a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve, inclusion being one, so how do we include more folks in sport? That's a really complex problem that's tied to a bunch of other problems like poverty, discrimination. And so social innovation is sort of, it sounds jargony, but what it is, is it's a process that allows you to consider all those factors um, in order to come up with some solutions that are most likely going to make some lasting change. So this new series, Over the Counter, uh, what we really try to focus on is the inclusion in physical activity and sport and recreation. And I know Via Sport has prioritized the inclusion of marginalized youth in sport. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that mean, marginalized youth? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a, a term that we've changed quite a bit. So we've been funded by the British Columbia Alliance for Healthy Living to really focus on um, youth who face barriers to participation. So they used to be called at-risk youth. Sometimes they're called vulnerable youth. Sometimes they're called marginalized youth. Um, but really, the, the more empowering we can frame them, um, because these really these are most youth. They're a ton of youth, and mm-hmm. so they don't fit a really specific box. So I like to describe them as, you know, any youth that might face some sort of barrier to participating in physical activity, sport, or recreation. So you know, it could be a girl, right? We know that girls participate at lower rates than boys. It could be a youth with a disability. It could be a youth living in poverty. So. Um, yeah, really a more holistic look at what um, youth who might need some additional supports to participate might be. That's really cool. And I know um, in stuff that we've talked about uh, before recording that uh, there's an intersection between those things as well, right? So, um, and in reading some of the stuff you gave us, it's about the spectrum. And so uh, not everybody who has that label is going to face that same barrier and really uh, understanding that as kind of an individual difference. Yeah, totally, and and love that you picked up on that. So the other thing is, I think when people often think about sort of marginalization or difference, I always joke that it's like, it's not that you, you know, can put on a hat that says, okay, now I'm going to work with a young Indigenous boy because that boy might have a disability, um, he, you know, he might have a mental illness, he might identify with the LGBTQI2S community, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, questioning, intersex, and two-spirited. Um, and so really treating individuals as though, you know, that one identity defines them uh, doesn't work. And so that's a key way that we think um, about these populations is actually, yeah, those identities aren't fixed and people can have multiple identities. So a one-size-fits-all model to inclusion isn't really the way to go. Yeah, I think it's really cool that that seems to be a bit of a theme in these conversations that we've been having. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I know when we talked to uh, Stephanie Jewell with the Connects Autism Network, she was talking about how uh, when you... Uh, work with one kid with autism that's just one kid with autism you don't know how every child is and I um, know you guys have a very similar approach so I think that's very cool that you know inclusion has to look different for every single individual but hopefully there are these universal principles that I know you guys have identified that we can we can help yeah totally and I think like I quote Stephanie all the time and I think she's actually quoting a um, an autism specialist Dr. Shore yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. Um, I should get the the quote right but yeah it's like if you work with one child you work with one child right regardless of of who they are so really getting to know that person and what their needs are and what their strengths are um, is what inclusion is all about 
according to me, anyways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I cannot agree. Um, I cannot agree more with uh, what you guys are just uh, talking about there. But what I want to um, ask is, what is the difference between participation and inclusion? Yeah, really good question. I think I could do a whole solo podcast on this one, but I think you know, if you look at a lot of even the sports materials on our website, we're we're really tasked with increasing participation. I think this podcast too is aimed at like, let's get pe- more people physically active and make it easier for more people. Um, but when you aim for participation, it's a bit of a lower bar, right? Mm-hmm. So if we know that a youth, for example, registers in a soccer program, great, we check our box of they're participating. That doesn't actually mean that they have a really positive experience when they're there. Um, And we know that a lot of youth drop out. So we know that there's, for girls, for example, at age 14, a ton of them drop out. To me, that's saying, you know, there's a lot of things going on, but one part is maybe they're not having the best experience or the best time while they're there. So that's why we really target inclusion instead of participation, because we think we need to care about what happens when people are in the door. Right, and so once they're there, how, how do we make sure that they're really well cared for, but also that they have a positive experience? And do you, have you heard stories of maybe uh, one particular thing overall other being the reason individuals might drop out once they're in the door? Yeah, I don't know that there's one reason. I mean, again, back to our idea about inclusion, it's there's no sort of one size that, that fits all. I think, you know, we know that cost is a massive barrier. And so, you know, the higher you get up, the, the more, uh, and so the, the more advanced you get in your sport, the more expensive it can become. So that's one reason that I know um, people drop out. But also, um, you know, as your priorities change, uh, it becomes harder to fit physical activity in. As, you know, I'm sure the three of us know and many other people experience that um, it has to be really rewarding and really fun uh, and a really positive experience once you're there or there's a million reasons why you might not go. I'm glad you really went that route of it's not, you know, always one thing. And the reason I'm happy we went there is because I wanted to touch on, because there's so many gamuts and so many factors, and what does inclusion training look like? Because there's so much incorporated into it. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Yeah, so we're developing um, inclusion training right now around specifically um, how do you equip like a coach or a frontline recreation leader, a cashier, a lifeguard, um, to really feel empowered to include anyone? And so I think that, um, you know, what we're really trying to do is not bog people down in that training. So I think it's really easy to get afraid when you're speaking about inclusion or trying to be inclusive because you want to make sure that you say the right thing, that you know enough of the cultural history not to offend someone. Um, And what we really found, you know, we were able to talk to nearly 250 youth about what inclusion meant to them, as well as a bunch of sort of the folks, we call them inclusion experts who best serve these youth. Um, And what they said was, just be curious, right? Just get to know me. And so it's it's not about being an expert at inclusion. It's about being curious and being compassionate. And so that's the focus of the training that we're developing. That's cool. Yeah, I, uh, I really liked, um, you know, you're mentioning like cashiers, right? Because I think it's so easy for uh, the head of the department to have had all this training, mm-hmm. but not everybody, you know, working that front line, interacting with those youth. And it's often, that's the first person through the door that they might meet if they're going in for a, you know, into the rec pool or the rec center yeah. or whatever. Um, or, you know, a summer camp and it's, you know, is are the individual camp counselors trained in the same way that the staff designing the camp are and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I think that that's really cool. And can maybe just touch on why that's so important and what some of the how those interactions might go for marginalized youth. 
So we were lucky enough to partner with the BC Parks and Recreation Association to do this large-scale survey about 500 of their staff, and and we wanted to hear from frontline staff, from sort of that mid-level managers, those are called programmers, and then from the upper management, and, and what we heard was everyone actually needed inclusion training. So across all three of those groups, people were saying, you know, I know inclusion's important, um, but I don't really feel equipped with the tools. And then when we sat that against what we heard from youth, it was, you know, I know the minute I walk into a recreation center, for example, that I, I'm not wanted there. And so if a youth is presenting as, you know, at high risk or maybe on the verge of being homeless, um, and they have a really negative interaction that makes them feel sort of judged at that front desk, or I know sometimes they're asked if they are trying to get reduction in fees, they'll be asked to provide their family's income level. Well, that's something that sort of brings up some shame for folks. And so that first interaction can be a real turning off place. And I think, you know, we also wanted to recognize that there's a ton of folks that work on those front lines, so those cashiers who are phenomenal. And so to exclude them from that kind of training um, is to say that, you know, their job's not as important. And, and we heard from youth that actually their job is incredibly important. And so that's why we've expanded it to both those groups. Uh, I know that we've talked about this important of inclusion training. So what kind of projects is VIA Sport working on in that area? Yeah, sure. So when I was thinking about sort of um, which projects to talk about, we have a lot of projects related to inclusion, and so it's hard to pick favorites. But um, for a long time, we've been doing work in the area of disability inclusion in, in sport, and we fund you know quite a few disability sport organizations. They're key partners of ours. Um, and so we've recently got some SHRC, so Social Sciences Humanities Research Council, funding um, to do a partnership development project with Dr. Andrea Bundin in the Department of Kinesiology at UBC. And so that project is about, um, you know, what do people with disabilities, you know, what's working for them in terms of sport participation and what would they like to see, as well as how can we better support sport organizations to meet their needs. Uh, but I do think my sort of, the project that I'm the closest to is our youth inclusion project. So that project was funded by the BC Alliance for Healthy Living. Um, and we've been tasked to develop inclusion training. So we call, sort of call it Inclusion 101 for sport and recreation leaders. And so that project is a three-year project, and really we're looking at, um, we see that project as sort of how do we make people more curious to know more about what they can do towards inclusion, and so we see it as sort of this basic level of inclusion training, um, and that's the project that eats the most of my time, and I'm, yeah, it's, I'm most passionate about that work. So how do you get from uh, the point A to point B, and what I mean by that is, uh, the B being the end goal is inclusion training. How did you guys get up to that point? So what information was collected and how did you guys uh, go about collecting that? Yeah, really good question. So, um, you know, I like to be quite humble when I talk about this project. So um, we actually did a ton of consultation. So I spent most of 2017 speaking to, um, we did a, a big survey of recreation staff. So the BC Parks and Recreation Association staff, you know, we spoke to nearly 250 youth at the margin across the province and then, you know, 130 inclusion experts or folks who, you know, serve these youth uh, in phenomenal ways every day. But when we started the project, we didn't actually set out to do that. We, we recognized that there were a ton of things that we didn't know. So initially, we were just supposed to develop inclusion content. And mm -hmm. so when I started on the project, I went, holy smokes, like, who am I to say, you know, how we should best include youth? Or who am I to, you know, I've, I, have, I don't work on the ground. And so while I could say, you know, in theory, or the literature says, do these six things, 
um, what is it like to actually make sure these youth feel served and cared for every day? And so um, that's why we undertook those three activities to really um, find out the things that we didn't know. So we didn't know if inclusion training was needed. We didn't know what was already going on. So that's why we did the BCRPA survey. We didn't know how youth wanted to be treated in terms of you know what inclusion meant to them, what did exclusion mean to them, and and you know what would it take for them to feel included in sport programming. And we didn't know how best to serve them. And so it was really we were lucky that the funder gave us enough time to really dig deep and investigate those three questions. That's really cool. So how how did you dig, dig deep? What was next? How did you get that? Yeah, really good info? question. And again, I feel like I could talk about this forever, but um, you know, right away I had that gut check of going, especially when talking with youth, um, that you know, I do have a research background, but I'm not equipped and I'm not the right person to go in and run those focus groups because these are populations where, you know, we were asking about feelings feeling excluded. And so we knew that some some stuff might come up. And so we hired a, a brilliant woman by the name of Kat Thorson, who um, has a lot of experience actually working in alternative education is where she got her start. She was an art therapist, but she's done a, a ton of work with um, high risk youth. So in um, you know, youth corrections facilities, for example, um, and in restorative justice circles. And so um, we really relied on her and her networks to get those focus groups off the ground. So essentially, she connected a bunch of folks that she knew across the province. Um, and we went into existing programs where the youth already had a connection, they already had a safe space. So we kind of avoided that you know, let's put a poster up and say, if you're a youth from one of these populations, rip off a tab. We knew that that wasn't likely to work. So it was really through her relationships. Um, and then the second component of that was we recognized that we were gaining a lot from these focus groups. So we were gaining a lot of information from the youth. We were taking a lot. But what were we giving back? And so um, we ensured that those focus groups had a big component of art. And so the youth were, you know, taught how to draw and it was a really fun, dynamic session. There was food. Um, and so it was a bit of exchange. You know, we'll have this conversation with you, but you'll also have a have a really good time while you're here. And that really helped us get um, a lot of participants. Yeah, it's really great to hear about the focus groups. And it seemed that it was more of a, what I would call maybe an informal setting. And I was just wondering, um, what are your thoughts on, do you, do you think you were able to um, achieve more out of that informal setting to say, rather than what we're doing with you right now and putting a microphone in front of you and asking you <laughs> a bunch of questions? Yeah, absolutely. I always laugh at the first focus group that we ever did because I had, I was wearing my business attire and I walked in with, you know, these typed out questions and a very strict agenda and the looks that I was getting from these youth were just like what you know like what are you asking why are you why are you here and the more that I deferred to Kat whose mm -hmm. style is really flexible and loose and sort of go with the flow the better the focus groups became and so by the end of it it was they were so organic and I think allowing space for youth to share their stories in a bunch of different ways whether that's through writing through drawing through conversation um, you know, I don't know that it would pass a, a research ethics, like a formal study, but that's not really what we were doing here. We were making sure that the, the space and the experience that the youth had when they were in the focus groups was positive and rewarding, and that also we could be, say something at the end of the day about you know, how they wanted to be included, what worked, and you know, what would make it likely that they would join a, a sport or a physical activity program. Well, yeah, I know you've got a pretty broad scope from these focus groups, so can you touch on that as well? What kind of 
targets you had of who you wanted to talk to? Yeah, so we initially set out with, um, for the youth focus groups, our target was 50 youth from across five regions of the province. In the end, we ended up speaking to 233 youth. We did 14 focus groups. Like we actually had to get to a point where we said, oh, sorry, unfortunately we can't do any more because people had heard that you know, youth really actually enjoy the art component and speaking about inclusion. Um, and so that, that was really rewarding for me because that was a sign that we had done the right thing and we had made sure that um, not only, again, were we getting the information that we needed, but it was actually a benefit to the youth as well. Um, and then in terms of the inclusion expert focus group, so we did um, you know, a series of interviews and observations of programs and also focus groups with people we called inclusion experts. So these are non-sport, non-recreation people for the most part who spend most of their time serving youth um, at the margins and, and really dug deep with them about, you know, how do you do that? You know, what do you wish you knew when you started your job? And then watched them interact with youth to see the things that they did that they weren't even conscious of. Um, and we had success with those focus groups again because I think Kat had great relationships, but also people saw a need they wanted to share their expertise and so they were really willing to to speak with us and share their knowledge that's great so what were some of the big takeaways from all of these conversations that you've had yeah really good question I think and it took a long time to to be able to boil it down to sort of key findings I think for me it was really hard I didn't want to lose anything and especially you know when a youth shares their story I I just wanted to make sure that all those stories were captured and that we weren't, you know, really missing anything. So I think, you know, we heard loud and clear from the recreation folks that inclusion training is needed. We've also heard that from our sport partners. Um, again, like you asked me earlier, um, you know, participation's not on a high enough bar. So we heard from youth about, you know, some really devastating experiences that they had once they had registered and once they were through the door. A big one and I think a key place to start is there There are these systemic barriers that really make it nearly impossible for some youth to participate. So if your program's really expensive, if it's really far away from any transit hub, if there's no equipment provided for youth, for some youth it's just that's a non-starter. They, they just simply can't participate and so, you know, that was a key one for me as we saw a lot of these organizations that we went into they'd been able to come overcome those barriers by partnering with organizations that would donate equipment or you know donate transit passes or bring food um, but that was a really a, a key fundamental finding that you know without reducing those barriers there's some youth that won't be able to participate um, and then there's sort of three that i think are really easy for a lot of folks to pick up on um, one is that you know leaders have a lot of they have a lot of clout in terms of how inclusive they can make that environment so who you hire matters more than almost anything else we saw these staff that you know we called it the it, it factor they just knew how to connect with these youth that mattered than more than somebody who you know knew those sport specific skills really well and so um, that was a key finding and then i think the the last one would be that um you know, a lot of inclusion is about interaction. And so you can make someone feel really included. You can make a youth feel really included by getting to know them. So yeah, get learning their name, finding out what they need, finding out about their strengths um, and really celebrating those strengths. 
that's quite different than sort of a one-size-fits-all model. I think that's fantastic because I know um, you hear it all the time. It's, you know, it's just smile and, you know, be nice and this and that. And, I, and to quote your document, it's, you know, it's being nice 101. But that that's not how it is. It's, it's really finding a connection with these individuals. And yeah. even, you know, marginalized or not, anyone you meet on the street, it's all about having a connection with an individual. And that's how you build a relationship. Um, so my question, I guess, uh, after that little bit was, uh, where are you guys in the project right now and where are you looking to go? Yeah, really great question. So, um, you know, after we did all those focus groups and all that data collection, we were sitting on this mountain of data and recognized <laughs> again that there was, you know, we needed help. We weren't the experts in then turning that into workshop materials. So we're working with some instructional design consultants right now um, to turn that data into workshops and we think that that'll be ready um, in the fall and so we're sort of piloting and testing that training over the next six months and then we should have a final version early in 2019 and so really excited to see sort of where this training can go because we think you know while we're starting quite narrow with recreation staff and some sport coaches we think you know the more people I talk to about this project the more they go oh we could really use inclusion 101 training and while we think what we found is relevant to folks in sport, recreation, and physical activity is also relevant to really anyone mm -hmm. who's running programming or serving youth. So um, looking at how we can share it more broadly. Throughout all these stories you've heard over the last little while, I was wondering if you could share maybe specific stories. So early on in the project, um, I was introduced to a young woman named Miko, and um, she's given me permission to share her story and is happy for me to use her name, and um, she's a stellar young woman. And I didn't know much about when we were, you know, why we were meeting. I was told, you just need to go for coffee with her, get to know her. And um, Miko was a success story from the, from the lens of she participated. So she had what she described as a really crappy home life. Um, and soccer for her was the space where she felt most at home, most included. And so she really poured herself into soccer. She was playing you know, on high performance teams, playing four days a week. She was coaching three days. I think she was playing soccer six days a week. Um, but she had a really crummy coach one year who, you know, she ended up getting, I think it was like 10 concussions in one year because she was a goalkeeper. And so the coach just wouldn't let her come off the field. And so she continued to get really injured. And so when she couldn't play any longer and when soccer was no longer her safe space she really fell off the face of the planet and um you know her you know fairly recreational drug use turned into full-blown heroin addiction and and talking to her she was so passionate about sport uh, and she was so passionate about more youth participating and she said, you know, what happened to me? I don't want that to happen to anyone else. And so we actually hired her on the project. She came and helped us with all those focus groups and made sure that we weren't misinterpreting what youth said or made sure that those experiences were positive for the youth that were in the room. So that story for me and, and Miko, I stay connected with her quite regularly, is a like daily reminder of why, you know, inclusion matters so much. Um, yeah, so that's one. Fantastic. That's great. And so uh, I'm just curious, what was the thing that surprised you the most of everything that you learned through this whole process? What maybe was the thing you weren't expecting? 
I think what surprised me the most is the distance you can go when you're humble. So there were so many people when I spoke about this project that um, wanted to be involved when I said, you know, I don't really know how to make youth feel included. And it was like people were just jumping on board. And I think similarly, you know, running those focus groups with youth, uh, the less I pretended to know what I was doing, the more they shared. And then similarly in the training and the the reports that we're sharing is, you know, we're really trying to take a humble approach, which is, you know, here's what we heard. We know you have a lot to offer too. And I think um, that was a huge lesson for me in, in this project and something that I'm applying to all of my work. I love that because I think you have an academic background, Kyle and I do as well, and I think you're often told, oh, no, this makes you an expert in your mm-hmm. field now because you have a, a master's or a PhD in this narrow topic and it's... Uh, it's really important when you actually go and try to apply this learning that you've done in the real world to acknowledge that you are not an expert and there's so many other people that have so much valuable information. And so I, I love that. I think that's really important and really cool. Yeah, and I think it just, you know, the more we present ourselves as though we know it all, the less approachable we are and the less, less it looks like we need help. And so I think... You know, I've gained so many new new networking opportunities, relationships. People are willing to help me because I can say, man, I don't know. Or how would you do this? Um, and so that's my new strategy for everything is pretend you don't know, even if you know a little bit. Because um, I think it goes a long way in, in building relationships. And in the end, you get way further. So. Speaking of relationships, I, I imagine in this project you've built a lot of connections and relationships with other organizations with the same vision as Via Sport mm-hmm. and kind of what we're doing here on this podcast of inclusion. And I was wondering if maybe you'd be okay talking about some of these other organizations. What else is out here in the community? Um, who are some of these great people doing these initiatives? Oh man, I, you need like three hours. Um, I think we've got a lot of great partners at the provincial level. So the BC Parks and Recreation Association, as well as our funder, I was floored with how how you know, flexible and giving they were. Um, but at the community level, there are phenomenal people making an incredible difference every day. Um, three that I reference all the time. Um, Eastside Boxing, so they're a, a boxing organization on the downtown east side that you know serve, uh, there's 40 kids who come five days a week. They get food while they're there. They get all the equipment they could need. The program is free. They get transit, it's just, they're doing phenomenal work with a staff of about three and so to me that is just those are magic people who are thinking outside the box and keeping those those youth at the center of what they're doing um uh, red fox healthy living society so they're running programs for mostly indigenous youth but also any youth can come and these are after school programs that they run throughout the lower mainland and again it's really barrier free stuff they're doing a bunch of play with their youth I got to go put on a red fox t-shirt and run around with the kids and it's you know they're doing traditional territory acknowledgement when they arrive and they're just again these phenomenal people who most of red fox staff are former participants so they have this phenomenal mentorship model where um, they identify participants and then pay them to then be staff so they're doing stellar work on the ground and then i also have to say that the city of vancouver youth workers so these are staff who are embedded in you know 10 recreation centers around vancouver are incredibly passionate and hardworking people who work with youth from tons of different backgrounds and a lot of different contexts and really their entire lives. You know, they don't go home, they're still serving youth at the end of the day. And so um, those are some other staff that I think of often when I get tired um, because they're just, they're, they're doing it and they're working so hard. 
That's great. I um, I always like to ask this question because it seems like it should be really obvious, but I always seem to get really interesting answers out of it. So why mm-hmm. should coaches and rec staff and whatever want to include marginalized youth in their programming? Why is it important? What can the youth benefit, but what can those staff benefit as well? And yeah. why, why should it be a priority for them? Yeah, I think like fundamentally it's a human right so play is in the UN Charter of the Rights of the Child so every youth has the right to access inclusive sport physical activity recreation so on a basic level that to me is why I come to work every day I think you know what I I still often think about the connections that I had with those youth in the focus groups and I think you know most people who coach a team sport or work in a recreation facility got into that because they had an awesome experience when they were young and so for them it's the opportunity to give back so give that experience to more youth Um, and I think in terms of why they should care about inclusion it's it's really important to recognize that your experience in sport and physical activity, if it was positive, that's not everyone's experience. And so you have so much power to make a massive difference for those youth who've had crummy experiences and change that narrative. How did the youth benefit from this program? Again, it seems like a really obvious question, but I'm just curious for your take on it. Yeah, what was, you know, sort of struck me is we asked the youth in the focus groups about exclusion generally. So tell me about a time you felt excluded. And so many of them had sport or gym class examples. And as you know, for someone who works in sport, that really hurt my feelings. You know, that really hurt me in the gut because I think um, we often talk about physical activity and sport and gym as this really positive space that can do such great things for folks' health, but also, you know, their mental health and all these other great benefits. And yet these youth were saying, it was not that for me. It was the place where I felt the least like I belonged. And so I think... Um, the opportunity to feel included and to get all those benefits um, is so huge for youth when the conditions are right. And so that's where I focus is how do we make sure that the conditions are right for those youth when they do choose to participate. Yeah, and so following up on that, what are some important things for coaches and staff and whatever to keep in mind when they're... Because I know uh, you've mentioned how it's not just... Uh, for marginalized youth, but every you mm-hmm. know youth can benefit from these things. So, uh, what are some things that they should keep in mind when working with youth, and particularly marginalized youth? Yeah, I think the first would be like, consider those big barriers. So, how do kids access your practice if? You know, if a kid is walking or biking, could you, why not build into the budget transit passes? Or if, you know, why not have some food there that's just available for everyone that doesn't need to be like, hey, Johnny, I know your family's struggling. Here's a granola bar, but we have granola bars for anyone who might need it. So that barrier thing is, is so key for me because, again, without removing those, some youth can't participate. And then the other thing to know would be that, all the tools for inclusion everyone has and they're free in their pocket it's a matter of getting to know youth not making assumptions about where they're coming from um, asking them questions find out what they like to do and then build on those strengths um, and stay curious and I think you know people get overwhelmed with this idea that there's a right way and a wrong way to include people from all these different populations, which, yeah, sure, like educate yourself. For sure, there's extra things that you can know, but at a most basic level, just get to know that kid and then treat them with kindness and compassion, and we can all do that. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's neat. I was just thinking as you were talking about the broader implications of when you bring youth in 
to sport and rec and they feel included and then the positive track that that can help them and like the you know achieving those sports goals might help them think of other goals that mm-hmm. they can achieve or it might you know in the case of um Miko's story it might prevent them from going down you know a, a, a bad path or it might give them connections where they don't have them otherwise and so I think there's broader societal implications that everybody should care about this it's not a um you know individual case where this one youth can benefit or Mm -hmm. you know the one coach can benefit but I think the work that you're doing can benefit the rest of you know Mm -hmm. even those of us who never meet these youth and never interact with them on a one-to-one basis all right I feel like we can definitely continue this conversation and talk for hours but I hear that bell coming in so it is time for the final lap All right, it's time for the final app where we take one final app around the table and get everyone's final thoughts. So how about I throw to you, Melissa? Yeah, I uh, I had such a great conversation. It was so nice to talk to you about this. And I, uh, I'm really loving that there seems to be these consistent themes going on in these conversations that we're having around inclusion, about uh, getting to know the individual as an individual. And it's not just about whatever label they've been given by society. Uh, and then how you can tailor that and how these consistent themes of getting to know them, making them feel included, uh, learning their name, being nice to them. Uh, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's super complex. It's not these, you don't need to, you know, go get a PhD in order to be able to make a youth feel included in a program. It's, it's something that anybody can do. And I love that. All right, Shauna, uh, your final thought. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I've loved being here and I think For me, inclusion is not about being perfect. It's not about getting it right every time. You will put your foot in your mouth and you will misstep. It's about trying. It's about being curious and compassionate and we really need an army. And so, you know, you two are part of that army and I think if there's other folks who are really passionate about inclusion in sport physical activity or anything in general, would love for them to reach out uh, via sport.ca is where our organization's at. Um, and you can contact me directly because I could talk about this stuff all day. I really love how throughout these conversations, uh, we're talking to so many people just creating safe spaces and safe environments for individuals uh, throughout this community. And it's really great, especially in the sport and recreation program, because I know it came up in the last episode is especially like a lot of young individuals build an identity off sports and recreation and it's just so great to see all these organizations building these safe spaces and uh, we're hoping to get more and more on and uh, I'm just so excited about this new series we have up and going. Yeah I was actually thinking about that on the way here I was walking to the bus and I was just realizing how different I, I you know I've gone through a personal journey of feeling more like an athlete over the last maybe decade of my life than I ever did as a as a kid and I, I was realizing that I just, I, th- I feel like I walk differently now than I did back then. And, you know, just I have this kind of different relationship with like my physical body because I'm more confident in how it moves and all these things. And I can only imagine how for a youth who's been feeling excluded in certain ways, how that confidence might uh, have really positive impacts for them. So, yeah, I, I think it's really cool. I'll have all the the warm and fuzzies. Um, All right, so I guess it's time to wrap it up. Thank you again, Shauna, for for coming on. We're so excited to have you joining the movement, joining the conversation. Uh, I am here with Melissa. My name is Kyle Boyle, and we are reminding everyone to include everyone and uh, go take your dog for a walk. It's good for you. Take care. 
If you like this podcast and want to listen to past or future episodes, you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud under the heading The Fifth Sign. We will be posting a link on our website at eimc.sites.olt.ubc.ca. And you can also find us on Facebook at EIMCUBC and Twitter with the handle EIMC underscore UBC. If you are interested in joining the movement and coming onto the show, you can follow me and send me a personal message on Twitter at HelloKbo. That's H-E-L-L-O-K-B-O.